The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. It's nice that we had some rain tonight. Make the earth a little happy, happier. So I've been uh, covering the middle chapters in the book, uh, The Mind in the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life by Ajat Sumedho, probably now the, the most senior Western Buddhist monk, certainly in the Theravada tradition. And uh, he's about 70, maybe even early 70s. And he ordained, he was actually relatively old when he ordained, he was I think 31 or 32. But he's been a monk for 40 years, so I guess he must be either 72 or 73, something like that. Um, but anyway, he's a well-known uh, writer, not writer, I mean most of these books are just his talks that have been transcribed, turned into books. And this is a wonderful book. And because of the sort of breadth, you know, really talking about how to use practice in all parts of life, but this middle section is specifically about meditation practice. And I really like the series of chapters because it gives us a good sense of what, are we, what we're trying to do when we sit. So the first chapter in this section, chapter 8, is about right attitude. How important, the most important thing in meditation practice is right attitude. Or uh, beginning with right view because everything follows from that. So if we sit down to meditate with some wrong view, like um, I'm med meditating in order to be recognized by my friends as an interesting human being, well, it has a real effect on what's going to happen from our meditation practice. So he describes in that chapter about right attitude that basically right attitude is not about attaining anything, not about getting anywhere, so that sort of eliminates almost everything. Okay, I meditate, but I'm not trying to get anything from it. And that kind of, right there, is sort of a paradox. Well, what is it I'm doing? Well, we're opening to the way things are. That's the only thing that's left. If we're not trying to get anything or get away from anything, then we're simply practicing, not for attainment, not to get anything, but just to be or to understand or to receive the moment as it is. And that really, that just getting that, just remembering that, if that's all we did is remember that in the first 10 seconds of our sit, that would be useful. If a human being would sit down every day and just remember that possibility that a human being can be alive in the world and not try to get anything from it. And that's the basic attitude of meditation practice. We're alive, we're sensitive, and we're not trying to get anything from life. That's why there's such an emphasis on dana or generosity in Buddhist practice, and probably most spiritual traditions. Because you see, it's, it's related to that attitude, isn't it? Like if we're being generous, in a moment when we're freely generous, not like pretend generous, like I'm imitating being a generous person and hoping you notice. But when I'm really spontaneously or freely being generous, then in that moment I'm not trying to get anything. I'm not even trying to get your recognition. I'm just 
being generous, the heart's just opening with, you know, kind words or some kind of generosity. So we'll see the reason we want to cultivate this right attitude. We see how useful it is all through life. So the, the first chapter in the section, chapter 8, was right attitude, moving from trying to get something to just uh, the attitude of just being with things as they are, understanding this is how it is, and being receptive to that, open to that. And that's it. Anything else would be uh, wrong attitude. Anything beyond that would be wrong attitude. And then the next chapter, you know, as he kind of digs into this meditation practice of ours, he talks about opening to the ordinary. That's such a big part of meditation practice because so much of what we see or know when we're sitting is just the ordinariness of the breath coming in or out or hearing sounds or feeling our ache in the back, our pain in the knee, feeling the restlessness in the mind and body, feeling the dullness in the body and mind. These are very ordinary experiences. I mean, these are experiences that we as human beings have all the time. So it's amazing that we're surprised when we see them open to these, you know, these states in our meditation practice. Of course, of course, this is going to happen. So we want to be prepared. So our teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, says, you know, we need to practice opening to the ordinary not thinking that our practice is about something else. So first we have the right attitude that we're not trying to get anything. And then the next encouragement, which we need right after that first remembering, okay, it's not about getting anything, it's just about being open. Because if we don't get this instruction to open to the ordinary, you know, we remember it's not about attainment. It's not about attainment. It's just about being present, being open. And it's so ordinary. This can't be right. So we'd immediately start doubting our practice unless we get the second instruction, which is it's about opening to the ordinary. The ordinary emotions that we tend to have, you know, all of us, we have our top five emotions or top ten emotions that, for given the way that we've been conditioned, tend to come up a lot for us. You know, maybe you're an irritable type. Maybe you're a needy type, a greedy type fearful type, a dull type. And so those kinds of mind states tend to come up, those ordinary mind states that we're dealing with. And we're going, this is not why I'm meditating to have my ordinary mind states. I want something beautiful, blissful. So non-attainment, it's just about opening and, and opening especially to the ordinary. And, and just to sort of really get this deeply, we actually create a technique, you know, like mindfulness of breathing, which is very ordinary. You know, so not only are we just opening to how it is, but we're even training the mind to specifically look at one unfolding experience that is always going on as long as we're alive, which is the sensations of breathing. And it really challenges that part of the mind that's looking to attain because it's very hard to attain anything from watching the breath. We don't get anything. The ego doesn't get anything from watching the breath. But the more we practice watching the breath, 
to really watch the breath, to really be intimate with the breath, we have to let go of a lot. And we start to recognize how wonderful that is. <laughs> it's really nice to have some kind of structure that supports letting go. Like we can't actually be intimate with the breathing process and be worrying at the same time. It's just not possible. If we're really intimate with the breathing process, we have to let go of worrying. We have to let go of wondering whether we're a worthy human being or whether we're you know, thinking that we're the best or at least better than our partner or better than our friend. You can't have any of that thinking and be present, fully present with the breath. All of that stuff has to be dropped. So we have right attitude. We practice opening to the ordinary, like the opening to the sensations of the breath coming and going. And because we're letting go of a lot to be with the ordinary breath, the whole system calms down. And in that calming down, the, the sort of next layer of practice begins to reveal itself. And in this chapter, the next chapter, chapter 10, he calls it cleansing the mind. So people who haven't been around, I've repeated this already for a couple of weeks. So this is familiar, but I think it's really useful. It's useful for me to repeat it. So maybe it's useful for you too. So, because then we don't want to be surprised, because here we are, we're getting a little continuity with our breathing, right? We're just there with the breathing process, and uh, maybe the mind wanders, but we shepherd it back, we connect, we feel the breath coming in, we feel the breath going out, and there's, there's sort of like, we're in the proximity of the breath, the awareness is in the proximity of the breath. We may take short vacations, but we come back. And everything begins to settle down a little bit. And we might even feel like, you know, this is working or I'm good at this or something like that. And then generally what happens, you know, different ways for different people at different times. But uh, stuff happens. You know, we get really agitated. We get really afraid. We get really interested and wanting and excited. And basically... Uh, old unfinished business gets triggered. You know, patterns that have been well established, they just sort of enter the mind. They arise. And of course, they're not, it's not random. There are causes for these things to happen. But we don't need to know why this mind state has come up, why I'm so sleepy tonight, why I'm so agitated tonight, why there's so much pain in the body, why the mind is so uh, restless or irritated or blissful whatever it is it's just what it is and we practice letting the mind cleanse itself by just allowing whatever is arising to arise so at these times we might need to let go of the breath if you can stay with the breath and just let that stuff move in the background then just let it move in the background but if you can stay with the breathing then Drop the breath, drop the attention to the breath, and just let whatever's moving, it may be an emotion, it may be some mind state, without getting caught in any content, let the energy move, the energy in the mind and body move. So this is the cleansing. So much of spiritual life we could call purification. And in Buddhism, this is how we talk about purification, which is allowing the 
body and mind to unfold without any friction, without putting clamps down anywhere. See, we're not choosing this to be the way it is. It's arising naturally due to its own, own causes and conditions. And we're just trusting nature, basically. We're trusting that the safest thing for a human being to do in this situation is to sort of the hands off, even if it gets quite dramatic, you know, dramatic mind states, dramatic body states. As long as we don't think, as long as we feel we're not harming the body, we just sit and we're relaxed. We have this quality in the mind and body of being undefended and we just let it cleanse itself, let the energy move the mental or physical energy move. Just let it happen. So this this will happen at times in our practice. So then we're not doing mindfulness of breathing often. We've dropped that as a particular technique or a particular orientation for the practice. And instead, we're being mindful of whatever cleansing process is happening. Cleansing because in not attaching or identifying with the movement of the mental or physical energy, it just unwinds. It comes from somewhere and it goes somewhere. And we don't have to figure out where it's coming from and we don't even need to figure out where it's going. We just trust that it's coming from someplace and going someplace. And in no way does the mind or heart need to grip, need to cling, need to react. So we're practicing non-reaction or non-clinging is usually how we translate it. And then that purification or cleansing process may end and the mind may feel relatively calm. And then we could just notice the body sitting, notice the breath in the body. And in those periods of time when we're able to connect and sustain the attention with the breath, we just try to... Um, uh, sort of discover deeper and deeper layers of trying to get something and let those go. So we're just trusting the breath in a deeper and deeper way, the whole body process in a deeper and deeper way. But specifically, you know, it's nice to give the mind a specific thing to pay attention to. You could easily do the practice using your whole body, but it's a, it, it just tends to lead to more distraction. So we we sort of narrow down the field a little bit by saying, let's pay attention to the breath in the body and practice non-attainment with this until the next wave of cleansing comes up, maybe months away, maybe just in a few minutes, or maybe a particular pattern reappears over and over again for years, a particular sort of uh, a layer of pain, mental or physical pain. You know, after the mind calms down, it just may come back up. And, and almost every sit, it may reappear for you. And then we just do the best we can to let it purify itself by allowing whatever that mind state or body state is to let it arise in the moment and go. Arise and go, arise and go, without trying to hurry it along, without lingering with it, you know, wanting, oh, I like this state. But just trusting that it will come and go on its own. And then the next chapter, and I really like how he, these chapters unfold because I think it really points out sort of the development of insight, how it often unfolds for people when they are uh, really devoted to their sitting practice or just being mindful in life. 
is that the more that we can allow those uh, layers of pain or unfinished business to unwind, to arise and cease, to come and go, we begin to uh, recognize part of the mind that's not the particular activity in the moment. So in this chapter he calls it, the title of this chapter is Noticing Space. So, you know, whether we're with the breath coming and going, or whether there's some particular purification that's going on, some body pain, let's say, that we're just practicing being with. And the pain, you know, it comes in a wave, and then it goes, and then there's another wave, and it goes, and the mind is just staying with it. We're just, we're not grabbing a hold of it, we're not distancing ourselves from it, we're just letting the pain, the energy of the pain come and go, move. So when we're not getting uh, obsessive or fixed on a particular activity of the pain, meaning there's like a kind of allowing, a letting whatever's happening happen, then we just start to notice that this movement of pain, in this example, is happening in this vast space of the present moment, or the space of the heart, or the space of the mind. We just start noticing the inherent space. It's always here. But our mind has been trained, you know, the way we've been conditioned in our human culture, our mind has been trained to fixate on the particular conditions of the moment. And even when there's nothing interesting for our mind to obsess or fixate on, then we fixate or obsess on something to fixate and obsess on. It's like we go looking, and we're fixated and obsessed in the looking. So there's always, you know, given how we've been conditioned, we're almost always obsessing and fixating to some degree. That's just what our mind does. And, and it, it, we do it so much to such a degree that this aspect of the mind, in a sense, becomes, uh, begins to define us. It's like this is all we know about our human experience, is this aspect of the mind that's fixated on an idea, on an experience, on a condition. It's sort of locked in, and in that blocking it, it sort of defines us in that moment. So you can just practice, you know, noticing space. It will just occur naturally in practice. You know, the more that you have, we, we develop right attitude, not trying to get anything from our spiritual life, from our meditation practice, and really investing in ordinary experience, like really becoming intimate, with ordinary experience and not trying to get anything from the breath or from sensations in the body or from sounds. And then letting this, when waves or uh, intense experience or dramatic experience happens, not getting involved with it, just letting it un unfold, unwind, untangle. Then we just start noticing space. But you can intentionally try to notice space. It's like sometimes when I'm in a conversation with somebody, I'll notice, you know, I'm kind of locked in a little bit, you know, trying to figure something out or I'm trying to make my point, trying to get this person to understand me or trying to understand them. And there's a certain hardness. And in a moment, because I think because I've been practicing for a while, you know, I just recognize how unpleasant that contraction is. And I'll just relax. I mean, but not just physically relaxed, but relaxed like in all dimensions. It's like the whole mind, body, heart softens. 
And you can do that anytime. Like you can even do it right now. You're listening to the talk. You're feeling your body. But the mind isn't gripping on any particular condition in the moment. It's not like uh, valuing the words and the meaning of the words you're hearing more than the sensations of your buttocks against the chair or cushion. It's just the activity of the moment. And there's a kind of trust that if there's something that needs to be known or understood or learned in this moment, it's going to be learned or understood. And that the gripping actually isn't required for us to learn from our life. So this is like we're beginning to recognize or notice space. And that only arises, that insight or recognition only arises when the mind isn't really locked in to the particular conditions in the moment. So you can just try that, like even driving, you know. Do we need to be tight when we're driving on the freeway? Or can the mind be spacious? Not spaced out, but it's like we're seeing what we're seeing, but there's no rigidity in the mind. Actually, the mind becomes much more nimble and much more likely to notice because it's not fixed here so when in our peripheral vision we see something there because we're not attached to looking here the mind will naturally notice that someone's a little close to us on this side you know in athletics they call it being in the zone right it's really the same thing and if you read you know there's not quite a bit of literature about being in the zone for athletes and I think also artists when you read the literature um, you know, they talk about that you can't make yourself be in the zone. You know, it's not about willful effort to be in the zone. And generally, the way you get in the zone is you become so competent at whatever you do, let's say playing basketball, you become so competent you don't have to think about your layup or your jump shot. It's just you've done it tens of thousands of times, the body knows it, so you can really relax. And so then you know, in relaxing and just trusting the mind and body, you take away the sense of self that wants to do it right, that wants to win the game, that wants to prove yourself or avoid a humiliation. And this is all about noticing the space. So obviously, this is easier when we feel safe. So that's the whole point of meditation practice. I mean, in a way, the definition of meditation practice in terms of like creating this artificial time every day, artificial in the sense it's like different than our normal day, is that we're trying to uh, massage our conditions while we're meditating so we feel safe. We're in a safe place. Often we'll choose a place that's pleasant to be in, like by a nice window overlooking a garden or an uh, altar with things on the altar that really to us are pleasant. Um, with a group of people that we really trust and like being with, sitting in a comfortable play, a comfortable way that sort of is conducive of wakefulness. Often people begin their meditations by bringing pleasant things to mind, like loving all beings, or you know, gratitude, or uh, a really beautiful aspiration, like wanting to live for the benefit of all beings to support happiness in the world. This is all about 
creating a sense of ease and safety. So when you want to practice noticing space, it's really good to start uh, where it's easy for you. You know, wherever that is. And then just see if you can soften your heart, mind. And remember, right attitude is the most important thing. So you're not trying to get anything from the experience. That's the key. Not trying to get anything. Really trust the ordinariness of whatever's happening in that moment. And if there's something dramatic going on, don't try to fix it. Don't try to control it. Just trust it. Just like all the mind and body experiences, it's just nature. It would have been silly for us to try to control the thunderstorm this afternoon, right? Well, it's just exactly the same to try to control our body and mind states. They're just as much like nature as the weather or trees or robins, you know? It's just nature. So we're practicing letting nature express itself, not getting involved and not distancing ourselves. That's the cleansing process. And then we just naturally start noticing space. And then the next chapter, which I think is great, he calls Now is the Knowing. And this chapter is all about this sort of deeper insight that once we have a sense of space, then we can really begin to... uh, um, You know, space is the opposite of fixating on the particular conditions of the moment. But once we understand space then we know how to relate with the particular conditions in the moment. Space gives us the wisdom to be a parent, the wisdom to be you know, a citizen, the wisdom to be a partner and a friend. Because when we understand the space in the present moment, then we don't get confused by our relationships. But if we don't understand space, then our relationships take on meaning that they don't deserve. In a sense, they take on too much significance. Like if I don't understand the space in the present moment, and then and then a particular condition, you know, I break my leg. Well, I can really freak out if I don't if I'm not recognizing the space in the present moment. It's like the broken leg, or what's going on in politics, or what's going on in my intimate relationships. They can feel like it's the most important thing in the world. That's basically why human beings suffer, is we lose perspective. And so this word noticing space, or these words noticing space, it's really about perspective. And without perspective then, we're living uh, fixated, dependent on the particular conditions. The conditions of our lives define our existence. So if I'm dumb, that deeply defines who I am. If I'm great, you know, competent, that defines who I am. And I'm dependent on that. So then, like for example, if I think I'm competent, then I'm threatened by everything that suggests I'm not competent. Everything, you know, and if I'm, if I'm stupid, let's say, I think I'm stupid, then I'm threatened when anybody when when I can't sort of disguise that. So we're vulnerable and we're tight in the world. But the more we understand space and we understand that everything comes and goes, then we know how to relate to conditions. Ajahn Sumedho calls this the totality of Dhamma. It's like really, Dhamma 
the way it is, it includes space. Mostly we're oblivious to that until we start sort of engaging a spiritual practice. Then maybe we can wake up to this part of the heart, mind, that we normally are oblivious to. And then waking up to that space really helps us be in a conditioned world where we have a body, where we have relationships, we have a job, we have responsibilities. And we, we know we can relate to those conditions with wisdom instead of without, without this insight of space, we relate with attachment. That's how we relate in the world. We relate with identification, attachment, and aversion. And so there's no way away from that without some kind of insight. Like, can you imagine a human being not being attached to their body, to their relationships, to their health, you know, to their success or lack of success, without some kind of deep insight? Of course, as human beings, we're going to be completely attached, identified, dependent on those kind of conditions, like how my body is, how my mind is, what people think about me, what I think about other people. So what, what can free us from those attachments? So we can live within relationships, we can have a job, we can live in a culture, a society, and interact and do what's useful, what's good, without the attachment, without the stress, the weight. What kind of insight do we need? Right? Well, it's got to be an insight that changes our relationship to the conditions of the present moment. That's the kind of insight it is. And where do you look for an insight like that? Where you look right here. So the question is, we are attached to our conditions that we experience moment by moment. We do get fixated and attached, identified with them. So we practice opening to how it is getting close to the experience to see whether that way of relating is the proper way of relating. That's why we open. That's why we practice being intimate. Because we discover that there's another way to relate. But we'll never discover that unless we really look at the present moment and look at our attachment, our identification, see directly how painful it is, and let go. And there's only one way to let go of that attachment, that way of attachment, which is to feel how unpleasant it is to be clinging all the time, to be fixated and obsessing and attached all the time. And then this next chapter, chapter 13, Ajahn Sumedho is called uh, Themes for Daily Practice. And he's just giving us some suggestions like where we can begin to do these reflections, basically moving through all these steps, establishing right attitude, which means not attainment, not about getting anything, but just about being open to the way it is, and trusting the ordinary, seeing the ordinary, opening to the ordinary, allowing the cleansing process to happen, not resisting it, not distracting ourselves from it, just allowing whatever is moving to move, allowing things to just take their natural course in the mind and body over and over again, and then noticing space, and then trusting the totality of the present moment of Dhamma. So not, not being afraid of conditions. That's really the fruit of insight. 
because normally, you know, we think of spiritual life, we have to distance ourselves. Oh yeah, I get so attached, so I have to distance myself from the things that I get attached to. And that's that's true. We do need to distance ourselves. But ultimately, we want enough insight that we don't have to distance ourselves from the world, from relationships. Like we don't have to live in a cave somewhere, or as a hermit, or you know, afraid of getting involved in politics, or afraid of having an intimate relationship, or afraid of uh, whatever we might be afraid of. So in this chapter, um, Themes for Daily Practice, he uh, brings up a basic list in, in uh, the Buddhist teachings. Uh, Buddha calls these three things something like the courses for meritorious actions, or the, really the cause for goodness in our life. There are three causes for goodness, developing sila, dana, sama, and uh, bhavana. So sila means uh, ethical conduct harmonious conduct, conduct or right action and dana is generosity and bhavana means uh, mental development sort of developing the samadhi the clarity quietness and clarity of the mind so these things like lead directly to happiness cultivating these three things and uh, these are and the way we cultivate them is just reflecting on them. So in the in the world of sila or ethical conduct, it means, you know, and we're always involved in ethical conduct. Like right now, we're all related to one another. For example, if somebody started doing something that was rude and distracting, you know, that would be rude and distracting. And so if we're reflecting on our experience, not trying to get something from our experience being here in this room, but just reflecting on sila, then we can just see, am I relating, am I, are, are my intentions about harming myself or others, or are they about not harming? And we just look at our heart, and the intentions in our heart and mind, right now. And we're just on the lookout for intentions, you know, just noticing like the intentions that tend to lead to the mind getting fixated and identified and attached. You know, it's not fair that that person keeps moving. They're distracting me. So even though we may never say anything, you know, we might just kind of throw that person out of our heart. Like, that person shouldn't be here. Or, you know, that person seems so still, so peaceful. You know, what's wrong with me? So we, in very little ways, even at a place like Common Ground, at a program like this, we get involved in harming. Maybe we don't externalize it in terms of what we say and do, but in our mind, in our heart, we're kind of engaged in acts of violence. I mean, very subtle, of course. But still, acts of violence all the time. Just think about how many people in this room you've judged. You know, you've looked at their clothes, you've looked at their shapes, you've done something, in some way you've judged them. Right? And now, if we start judging ourselves for doing that, that's not the path. The path is simply to not try to get anything, 
but just be open to how it is, being open to Dhamma the way it is, to the ordinariness of our minds that judge or compare or do whatever they do. And seeing it in the context of space, the context of the present moment, as something that comes and goes. Not taking it personally, not investing this kind of weight. It's such a relief to be able to have despicable thoughts without having to own them and to feel bad about them. It doesn't mean we want to act them out because we see that they just cause harm to act them out, but not to hate ourselves for having despicable thoughts, but just let them come and go. Remember, that's that purification or that cleansing process. Just let them come and go. So you see, sila is just a particular avenue to do our practice. You don't have to do it sitting down in meditation practice. You can work through these all these things that I talked about tonight in the context of harming and non-harming all day long. This is the the development of sila. It's just observing uh, whether there's any intentions of harming or non-harming. Loving kindness is non-harming, right? So what kind of intentions, what are the qualities of the intentions that are arising in the mind now, harming or non-harming? And the way we know this reflection is working is, is it conducive to peacefulness? It's like, if we do this reflection correctly, then the tendency to identify with the intentions of, of harming, they drop away. If we're not reflecting and I have an intention to harm, to throw somebody out of my heart, well then I tend to proliferate. You know, we tend that tends to lead to contraction and agitation in the mind. Do I really want to be part of a community that includes these people? You know, that we've spent the last thirty minutes judging and comparing and and we can like really get like, you know, in a fit. And all the different ways that, you know, we get in a fit. Or I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not good enough to be here. I should have never come. So these are just acts of violence because the intention was there, but there was no awareness seeing that, oh, that's just an intention. An intention to harm, and, it was, and it's like this. And then we just let it come and go. And it may come again, and we let it come and go over and over again. So this is just one way we can reflect. So ethical conduct, you know, we can talk about many aspects of it. Sexual misconduct, misuse of intoxicants, wrong speech, harmful speech, stealing, greediness. But in a way, they all boil down to harming and non-harming. The entire sort of realm of ethical conduct comes down to harming or not harming. And Harming and non-harming all have to do with the particular intentions in the mind. So that's one way to reflect. Another particular avenue is just the avenue of dana or generosity. So just looking at whether in our hearts there's some sense of scarcity and neediness or whether there's a different quality of, of kind of uh, abundance, you know, and a willingness to give our time away to really show up when we're talking to somebody, really be there, instead of sort of pretending to be there, but really worrying about this or thinking about that, or giving away some of our possessions, supporting others, 
And this is a wonderful thing to reflect on. And again, not to judge ourselves for being greedy, but just to know it's like this. So when there's greediness or neediness or a sense of scarcity in the mind, heart, then we want to see it without identifying. That's the key. Not to see it in order to hate it. Oh, I wish I wasn't so greedy. But just to see it and know that it's like this. So this is what the reflection is. And then also we want to see generosity. When there is a feeling of abundance or the upwelling of kindness or compassion or gratitude or patience or forgiveness, when we feel that, that all those wholesome states come from a sense of abundance as opposed to a drawing neediness. And you see how it relates to self-centeredness. When there's a sense of a somebody here, then we want to draw things to that sense of self. But when we're not fixated on the sense of self, then there's a natural movement of life energy out into the world. (coughs) This is just a place to reflect in our lives. So bhavana is really the meditation practice that I talked about for the first half of the evening. But these are two other places we can just do our practice. So the realm of relationships in terms of harming and non-harming and then specifically the feeling of uh, greediness or neediness or scarcity and the opposite of the feeling of generosity. So maybe I'll just end by reading a section from this last chapter, chapter 13, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So he's talking about bhavana, this mental development, heart, the development of the heart, you could say. Bhavana is the way we live our lives with mindfulness, wisdom, awareness, and openness. It's looking at life very clearly as we experience it and being able to adapt wisely to changing conditions. If we are shut off in our own little world of selfishness, we find ourselves unable to adapt to change. We are threatened and frightened by anything that's different or goes in a way that we, in a way we can't trust. But with an opening of the heart and reflection on the way things are, we can adapt to anything for better or worse. Our guidelines are our own good-heartedness and our self-respect. They allow us to make the proper adaptations to whatever happens in our lifetime. Often in daily life, the conditions aren't very supportive of spiritual development. So you have to learn how to use them for development. You might tend to see them as obstacles, interfering and preventing you, and to feel aversion and discontentment with your daily life. If you think you have to be very, if you think you have to have very special conditions to practice, then you will see ordinary daily life, working in the office, cleaning the house, taking care of the family, as a great imposition. Generally, these are not supporting conditions unless you change your attitude so that you can use them in your practice. You have to develop right understanding, the right seeing that will allow you to use your daily life in a skillful way. So I'll leave it here. Maybe you have some questions about the talk tonight or just some comments from your own practice, what you're noticing, any questions? to mind.
noticing space. It's right here. Cindy? I've noticed that this spaciousness is probably the most important um, thing in my work as a therapist. Um, and I've been paying attention to the effect of my work on me and um, just kind of what you're talking about of when, when I'm getting an interpretation and I'm feeling the, the neediness of that person and I want to get it right or I, you know, I want to jump in and, and meet some need or rescue them. Um, you know, it always is, is um, fatiguing for me at the end of the day. But when there's uh, just the flow and um, there's this, uh, it's hard to describe, but just the sense of spaciousness and, and whatever I say is seems just right. And, um, and then I still may be tired at the end of the day, but I don't feel so kind of beat up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm tired in a, in a good way. And, um, and just allowing that in therapy, they call it transitional space for the for the um, patient um, that creates a, a, a possibility for them to move instead of yeah. filling it all the time with words and thoughts and interpretations. So it's a really important moment for them to allow. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, clearly it makes a, a special, especially a lot of sense of ther- as a therapist. But wouldn't that be great if our parents were this way too? You know, like really uh, creating that transitional space for the kid to be the way that the kid is. Or if we did this with our friends or partners, you know. Or if you're a checkout person, you know, doing a cashier, just doing that with each person that comes up to sort of just allow them to be, you know, and to allow ourselves to be. I mean, it's like the greatest gift we can give. Just to try to clarify, what I'm hearing you say when you talk about space is not getting attached. Is is that an accurate? It's just like it's basically not getting attached to viewpoints or perspective. And when I'm not attached to that, then I get space. Yeah, but the the, the one caveat would be that. the pattern, the habit of attaching, identifying with conditions is so pervasive that we may say to ourselves we're not attached, but we're still attached. We're just not aware. So even though that's true, we need some sort of systematic practice that helps to reveal the more subtle attachments so that we can actually practice not being attached. So we may have like this moment for us being here together. The quality may be relatively spacious for us here. You know, we're not so afflicted by our worries and fears and desires. But uh, it's just relative. It's like relative freedom. Because when we're at work or if we're having a difficult relationship with our partners, our partner, then, you know, there when we're around them, we're just much more contracted. So we come here and we feel a little bit more spacious. But we want to undertake a kind of practice that is revealing uh, the more subtle ways that we're identified and contracted, that we do, that just are below the radar screen because they're subtle compared to our more dramatic contractions and identifications and attachments. It seems so at the risk of my brain just wanting to 
be reductionistic, but it seems like with the contraction is still having to do with getting attached or hooked. Oh, absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. And I appreciate what you're saying. If you try to do it intellectually, you're going to, that may not work very well. You intellectually, well, where am I attached? Nope, I'm not. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing you say. Is that yeah. That's Yeah, and it, which is a little bit my response to Stan's question, which is uh, we have to be careful hearing these uh, teachings, these instructions, because the the instructions are about a process. Like we actually have to do the practice of right attitude, not trying to get anything, not trying to get away from anything, and then really working with the ordinary experience. Because in that process, what we what we learn is like being with the breath, for example, and learning not to be attached with the breath. Well, it's all about learning to be intimate. We're, we're learning to be really there, intimate with the breathing process, <clears throat> but not attached. And so this is exactly what we need to do to our intimate relations, for example. Like we, we're really there. We're not distancing ourselves. We're not closing ourselves off. So it's not about detachment or sort of pushing away. It's kind of aversion, really. But being really intimate so we're not in denial, we're not repressing, we're not, but we're also not indulging or trying to get something. So one way to understand that, like if you're, if you're wondering, if you're reflecting on whether this feeling of non-attachment is wholesome, is just to look if there's a quality of intimacy. Like you're really willing to be close with the way it is, whatever it is in your life intimate with it or undefended with it and so both being open but also not indulging or trying to get something or uh, tight with it Alice
Yes, it's very relevant. Yeah. And isn't that one of the hardest things in the world to be uh, intimate, uh, especially with somebody we care about a lot, to be intimate with their suffering? I mean, that's generally what we pick up on is that we want them to do something in a different way because we feel like it will help them avoid suffering. And uh, but, but first and foremost, we have to be willing to be intimate with people's suffering. That's a great gift. Instead of immediately needing to fix them because we're afraid or averse to their suffering. And, uh, but it's really nice to be willing to be close to somebody's suffering. I really, this is where I work, I'm assuming Wynn works the same way. You know, as partners uh, with Wynn, my wife, you know, as, as we get to know each other better, it's like we just really understand how each other suffer. I mean, I certainly feel like I really get how her heart, mind suffers. And to my tendency is to be controlling. You know, it's like, no, I don't. Because somehow, because of the intimacy, when you suffer, I suffer. And so if you're not going to fix it, well, then I'm going to fix it. <laughs> Boy, does that create suffering. <laughs> So just learning, it's so scary for me to learn how to let her life be what it is, you know, and stay close. Now, I can let her life be what it is, but I have to distance myself. But to stay close and to let her be who, what she is, that's a real edge, a beautiful edge in my practice. I just see the potential of so much freedom and joy to be able to be really close with somebody I care about uh, and not have to get tight just because they're a suffering human being like me, you know, as if that's what you do when you're around suffering human beings because, boy, (laughs) that's why there's so much suffering because we all react to each other's suffering with suffering. And you can just see, you know, if you know anything about exponential equations, (laughs) you end up with a world like this. I think we have to end here at 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.